The Lady of Heaven set her mind to capturing the great heavens. Inanna set her mind to capturing the great heavens. Holy Inanna spoke to her brother, the hero, youthful Utu. I want to tell you something. Pay attention to my speech. My twin, I want to tell you something. Pay attention to my speech. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. We're your hosts. I'm Alex. And Kelsey. And we're listening to Inanna and Arn. So this has a similar structure to the myth we read in Episode 7, Inanna and Enki, in which Inanna tricks her father out of some of his power and appropriates it for herself. The difference here is that instead of her father being Enki, now her father is On, the Heaven God. This probably corresponds to the two different temple districts at the heart of Unu. So we will be spending a lot of time in Unug in the coming season, but essentially the Ayana is Inanna's temple complex, and the Kulaba is An's temple complex. And during the Ubayid period, these might have been two separate villages with their you know two separate cult centers that, you know, as they got bigger on both sides of the river, or possibly as the river changed course, they turned into one city over the course of time. Right now, Inanna's talking to her brother Utu, who is the Sumerian sun god. Her brother, the hero, youthful Utu, answered fully Inanna. My sister, I swear an oath by the life of heaven. I swear by the life of the rainbow of heaven. I swear by the life of my throne, by my majesty. I will follow what my sister says to me. I will follow what holy Inanna says to me. The maiden Inanna answered her brother, the hero, youthful Utu. Dumuzi, my spouse, has made love to me, has kissed me. I wanted the Ayana for him, but my father An did not give it to him. I pleaded with him, but majestic An would not give him Ayana. The heavens are ours. The earth is ours. Ayana should be captured from An. Listen to what I say to you. You must observe these instructions. So this is essentially an argument about a dowry. So in other words, you know, she's either about to get married or has recently gotten married to Dumuzi, but her dad won't give her new husband the estate. So unfortunately, there's a big chunk missing from the story. It's fragmentary in general. So uh, skipping forward a bit. Holy Anana embarked on the barge. That south wind, that south wind rose up. The evil wind, that evil wind rose up. And then there's another gap missing. She meets a fisherman named Adagbir, who explains that An is trying to foil Inanna's journey. Adagbir answered holy Inanna. My lady, if you travel on the barge, and he raises the south wind, that south wind, and he raises the evil wind, that evil wind, barges and small boats will sink in the marshes. So, eventually, Adagbir helps her find the Ayana. She gazed in admiration at Ayana, which comes forth from heaven. And stay tuned to see if she can take it. But we're coming back to Susiana today. This is the western half of modern Khuzestan province in the southwestern corner of Iran. We've had an eye on this region since the late 7000s BCE when Choga Bonat was first occupied. Today we're returning to the collapse of Choga Mish around 4600 BCE on the eastern side of the river plain, which we covered back in episode 10. Around the same time, on the west half of the plain, a new village was founded, which would eventually grow into the city of Susa, well known throughout history. Today, we'll cover its first golden age during the late 4000s BCE, culminating in the destruction of their monumental temple complex and a decline in population. Then we'll head southeast to Tal-i-Bakun, a village in southern Iran near the later city of Anshan, also familiar to the Sumerians. So the name Susiana refers to a wide, flat river plain between the southern Zagros foothills and the Mesopotamian lowlands. Much like the alluvium to its west, the area is watered by several rivers flowing downhill from the Zagros mountains to the Persian Gulf, creating seasonal swamps and wetlands, which would sustain both grain farming and foraging. The Karun River flows mostly west, and it likely would have flowed directly into the Gulf at the time. The Dez River flows south and joins the Karun near modern Shushtar, a modern city named, quote, more beautiful than Susa, end quote, in Farsi. 
The Karche River flows south past Susa into the marshes east of the Tigris. Today, Susa sits by the nearby Shaur River, although these rivers' ancient courses aren't certain. Susiana is separated from the Mesopotamian lowlands to the west by a gentle ridge, ensuring that the two river systems would never directly interact except near the shore. The two areas are about 100 kilometers apart, a journey between 5 and 10 days, with no major sources of fresh water, depending on how much of a hurry you're in. Similarly, Susiana is separated from the Gulf by a coastal desert with dunes of salty soil and no fresh water. Nobody would live in this area until long after the Bronze Age. As a result, Susa and its neighbors would interact less with overseas partners than cities like Ur and Eridu would. Susiana is fed by different rivers. It's a little farther inland at a little higher elevation, but otherwise, its climate and ecological conditions are extremely similar to the Mesopotamian Delta, making it perfect for the exact same kind of large-scale, intensive irrigation agriculture. The primary difference between the two regions was that it rained a little more in Susiana. Either way, dry farming was easier here. In addition to agriculture, livestock, and the fish and waterfowl from the mountains, the nearby hills abounded with wild goats, gazelles, asses, red deer, boars, bears, and leopards, all common enough to hunt during this period. This wild abundance would help large urban populations survive droughts and famines. So we cover the history of Chogamish back in episode 10 between about 6800 and 4600 BCE, that is throughout the entire Pottery Neolithic. Over this period, the population of southwestern Iran as a whole grew steadily, a trend which peaked in the early 4000s BCE, apparently centered on Chogamish in eastern Susiana. During this period, these settlements grew larger and more interconnected with the outside world, with new settlements in formerly unoccupied areas to facilitate trade and increasingly specialized pottery. This peak in interregional interaction coincided with the peak of the Ubayid phenomenon, which linked this area of southwestern Iran with the southern delta, the northern dry farming regions, and the Persian Gulf. Everywhere, settlements were growing larger as the institutional households at their centers were administering more and more of the local economy. Chogamish appears to have served as the administrative center through which much of southwestern Iran's trade flowed. First Chogamish and later Susa would lead Susiana's transformation into an increasingly hierarchical society. Chogamish was largely abandoned around 4600 BCE, with its public building burned down around the same time. This may have been part of a violent destruction in battle, or it may have been part of a ritual to end its use life, that is, to desanctify the building in order to stop using it as a temple. Whether they did so for political reasons, or because they depleted the local soil, or because the river changed course, or for some other reason, it marks the end of this building's tenure as the region's central administrative office. Chogamish didn't become a complete ghost town. Some people may have continued to live here throughout the 5th millennium BCE, and there is some evidence of local pottery production, but it won't be important again until the late Uruk period. During the Saitis, Chogamish appears to have been replaced by nearby Chogadosar, 8 kilometers to the southwest, with a platform 50 by 50 meters appearing around the mid-4000s BCE, and a much larger one built on top later on. Like I said, Susa was founded around 4700 BCE in a formerly unoccupied area, the same time Chogamish was abandoned. It may have been built as an intentional replacement center. The levee of the Karche River is elevated above the level of the nearby plain for the same reason as with the lower Tigris and Euphrates. The river erodes lots of fine sediment from upriver and then slows down in the lowlands, which causes the soil to settle down on the riverbed and build upwards over time. Because the river flows above the level of the plain, it's easy to irrigate fields on the levee walls, especially for a settlement sitting on the levee walls like Susa. We'll be looking at the Susa 1 period today, between about 4400 and 3800 BCE, especially focused on the period between about 4200 and 4000 BCE. This period corresponds to levels 27 through 24 of the Acropole, or Upper City, one of the two mounds around which the later city is centered. At its peak during this period, Susa was four times bigger than any of the 40 or so satellite settlements surrounding it. At its center was a colossal temple platform, likely the biggest man-made structure on Earth at the time. Like Unug, Susa started off as two separate centers on two nearby hills. The Apadana, named after the later Achaemenid Persian palace there, was first occupied around 4400 BCE. 
a wall made of packed mud six meters wide at its base enclosed an area of about six hectares. A few centuries later, after about 2.5 meters of occupation debris had accumulated, its residents built a monumental center called the Susa One Building. Its walls, coated with pink plaster, were two meters thick, sturdy enough to support a second story. This may have been the household of a local leader, since it has none of the hallmarks of temple buildings which I talked about in the Ubaid Temple episode. The other of the two hills, called the Acropole, or Upper City, by its French excavators, was around seven hectares, and it's not clear if it had an outer wall like its counterpart. The first monument built here was a low, rectangular, mud-brick platform, 14 by 7 meters. It survived to a height of 1.7 meters, but may have originally stood about twice that. The French excavators called this the Massif Funeraire, after the nearby cemetery, which we'll talk about in a bit. There's no evidence of a building on top. They may have built a temple or some other building out of more perishable materials. Or they may have used this platform for some other purpose. Whatever its purpose, one meter of residential deposits accumulated during its use. In a 2010 article, the perfectly named archaeologist Frank Hull suggests that this platform may have acted as a stage for a ritual performance. He points out several stamp seals depicting figures in masks performing what appear to be dances. Similar figures appear in scenes handling snakes or defeating wild beasts, both motifs which will continue to be important in later Mesopotamian art. This figure is often depicted with goat horns, which may have been part of a headdress. The temple is also depicted with goat horn decorations, and we may have found fragments of these baked clay architectural ornaments. As we'll see, goats with prominent horns are also important on pottery decorations. Anyway, Frank Hull suggests that these dances were part of religious ceremonies presided over by a particular ritual practitioner who they believed could communicate with or influence the supernatural. In several of these stamp seals, these figures appear to be wearing copper discs on their clothes. Similar copper discs are found at the nearby cemetery, as we'll talk about, indicating that these objects may have been worn as part of the performance. So like I said, not far from the Massif Funeraire was a cemetery. Cemeteries for adults were one of the trans-regional features of Ubayid society. Northerners tended to bury babies in jars under their houses, and we have no idea what happened to most of their adults. Children are still buried separately here at Susa. Two children on the other side of the platform are buried with their own child-sized pottery, but the vast majority of the 2,000 graves here belong to adults. Our biggest problem is that Susa was excavated around the turn of the 20th century by Fond de Siècle, French archaeologists who did a piss-poor job even by the standards at the time. It would have been nice if they had taken detailed notes on the graves, rather than observing, in general terms, which grave goods these graves tended to have. Of course, they couldn't have known that modern science, you know, 120 years later, can tell us all kinds of things about human remains, where they lived, what kinds of food they ate, what their health was like throughout their lives, and what major injuries they healed from or didn't. So, as was the custom at the time, these French excavators threw away the skeletons from this graveyard, along with less impressive pottery and the rest of the debris. So, we can't say for sure. One reason they were in a hurry was the impetus to produce museum pieces for the Louvre. You may be familiar with the fine painted Sousa One pottery there today, which we'll talk about in a bit. This cemetery produced about 4,000 fragments from these fine decorated pots, but of course, like I said, they threw away most of the non-fine pottery. As during the Ubaid period, people tended to be buried alone in single graves with at least a basic set of pottery, a tall beaker, an open bowl, and a small jar. These may have been for meals in the afterlife or offerings to the gods of the afterlife. Many people were buried with stamp seals, mostly with simple geometric designs. In other words, as during the Ubaid, the vast majority of people were buried with the same grave goods, indicating broad membership and a common cultural identity. What's new, though, are a small handful of graves with uniquely labor-intensive objects. Again, the excavators didn't note which objects came from which graves, but they did note 55 copper axes, 11 decorated copper discs, some fragments of stone mace heads, and stamp seals with more complex figurative designs, all of which were mostly concentrated closer to the center of the mound. In other words, even if each grave had no more than one of each, less than 3% of graves had copper axes, and about half of 1% of graves had these copper discs. Like I mentioned, these may be the same copper discs worn by ritual leaders as depicted on stamp seals. The fact that there are so few of them may indicate that they were buried with the performers who wore them. 
Of course, later temples used all kinds of objects and regalia, and very little of it would be buried with the individual priests who handled them, rather than continuously used by the temple and eventually disposed of as temple property. If these objects are related to religious worship, the fact that they were buried with individuals may indicate a transitional phase, when divine authority was still partially invested in these individuals rather than in the institution of the temple household. Similarly, the concentration of copper axes and more elaborate stamp seals near the monumental upper town may indicate that a small minority of the population had already begun to consolidate their hold on the community's wealth and power. Some of these graves may be secondary burials. That is, some of these people may have been originally buried elsewhere and had their bones moved here much later. Some tall beakers contained long bones, like femurs and humeri, and some bulls held skulls, but we can't be certain that this is how they were originally buried. Other graves apparently contained no human remains at all. These may have been cenotaphs, or ceremonial deposits of grave goods for adults buried elsewhere. So the late 4000s BCE saw a shift to a drier climate, as the Indian Ocean monsoon retreated farther to the south. In other words, for most of the preceding millennium, it had rained enough to grow cereals without irrigation. Like most farmers in the situation, villagers in southwestern Iran preferred to grow wheat, which requires more water and a narrower range of soil conditions than barley does. They also appear to have herded goats, which provide milk and fibers, but which are primarily useful as a source of meat. However, as dry farming became less and less feasible, farmers appear to have switched from wheat to barley, which can survive in a wider range of conditions, including the salty soil, which results from long-term irrigation farming. Over time, the river washes salts out of the soil upriver and carries them into these irrigation ditches. When the water evaporates, the salts accumulate in the soil. After a certain point, it becomes too salty for wheat, hence their continued reliance on barley. This potential evidence of irrigation farming, coinciding with population growth around Susa, may indicate large-scale migrations from small rural villages into Susa, with an administrative household capable of developing lots of farmland and dispersing lots of grain. They also started herding more sheep and cattle relative to goats, which suggests an increasing reliance on livestock for secondary products, wool, milk, and likely pulling plows. Cattle pulled plows, of course, would have increased agricultural productivity per capita by tenfold, allowing one plow team to till 0.4 hectares of land a day. It's about one acre, more or less equivalent to the Sumerian Iku. This is also around the same time we see more spindle whorls in the region as a whole, indicating that they were processing more fibers into textiles. In addition to supplying for their daily needs, textiles would have provided a useful product to trade for other labor-intensive goods to procure. Copper, obsidian, precious stones, and metals, and so on. However, sheep may not have produced much more fiber than goats at this point. They were certainly nowhere near as woolly as modern sheep are. That would take another several thousand years of breeding. All of this constituted a fine material response to a material challenge, reacting to a drier climate by switching to more productive methods. But the inhabitants of Susa around the late 4000s BCE would have inhabited a world of gods and spirits who demanded worship as a precondition for agricultural abundance. In other words, they may have attributed a drying climate to the displeasure of the gods, viewing any attendant climatic effects as an unfortunate byproduct of that anger. In response, they may have tried to appease the gods by ramping up their existing rituals. Rather than building a platform and sending one guy to make offerings on the top, why not build a bigger platform and build an entire building for making offerings? After all, as we've talked about, it's likely that temples were already considered the personal households of their respective gods, and we see this trend towards large monumental households everywhere. It's not clear whether or not these are always temples, but what is clear is that the symbolic language of monumental temples, that is, the specific features used to mark a religious building as visually distinctive from other buildings, originated in what appeared to be the domestic homes of local leaders. In other words, they appeared to have honored their gods in the same way as they honored their human leaders, with larger versions of the same kind of buildings, similar stone mesets, and so on. So to pacify angry gods, they may have chosen to build an even larger, more monumental version of the same elite household. So around 4200 BCE, they apparently set out to solve this problem. We're at level 26 of the Acropole, the second of four subdivisions of the Susa I period. By this point, Susa was a thriving regional center of about 15 hectares. 
Their solution to the god's displeasure was to build a massive lower platform, 80 by 80 meters and 2 meters tall. On top, they built an upper platform, much taller, with a slightly smaller area, 70 by 65 meters, standing about 8 meters over the lower platform for a total height of just over 10 meters, or about 33 feet. Notably, Frank Hull gives the exact figure of 10.08 meters, which you may recognize as exactly 14 Ubaid cubits from the Ubaid Temple episode, to the centimeter. This isn't proof that they used the same unit at Susa, but it is suggestive. The sides of the upper section were decorated with inlaid plaque mosaics, ceramic cones, which were also found at nearby Jafarabad, and monumental clay models of goat horns, recalling the goat horns worn by the ritual practitioner in the stamp seal I mentioned. Also, the decorative clay cones were used differently from the later Uruk mosaic cones, but they're a clear predecessor to their more famous counterparts, which were also used in monumental architecture. By my calculations, and I've checked this with several people, this should result in a total volume of around 50,000 cubic meters of unbaked brick, or around 13 million gallons of clay. I only mention this because Gilstein gives a figure of 570,000 cubic meters in a 2020 article, and I can't make his math work. Frank Hull estimates that these bricks could cover 5.5 hectares of land, with a layer of bricks one meter thick, adding up to a total volume 150 times larger than the massive funeraire. Like I said, this was likely the largest man-made structure in the world at the time, and its original excavators called it the Haute Terrasse. In addition to the natural hillside it was built on, the top of this platform would have risen as much as 20 meters over the surrounding plain, or about 65 feet. On a relatively level plain like Susiana, it would be visible from 16 kilometers away, or about 10 miles. On top, archaeologists found the remains of a grain storage building, but not the expected temple household. Similar platforms in southern Mesopotamian sites like Ur and Eridu were built with tripartite temple buildings on top. It's possible that Susa had its own monumental temple, which was completely destroyed in the fire we'll talk about. The plaque I mentioned is carved with similar designs to Mesopotamian temple facades, and both a seal and a pottery vessel at nearby Jafarabad depict the same style of tripartite Mesopotamian temple that we expect to see at Susa. However, it's also possible, as during the previous period, that there was no temple, and that the platform was again merely a stage for a ritual performance. Either way, the presence of such a colossal labor project proves the existence of some kind of social authority powerful enough to make people build it. By the time the second platform was built near the cemetery, this monumental area was surrounded on both sides by a complex administrative facility with installations for kilns, industrial ovens, large-scale grain storage, and other craft areas, all of which suggests a large and complex temple bureaucracy. Unfortunately, since the site was looted to fill the Louvre, we can never be sure. So like I said, the cemetery had 55 copper axe heads and 11 copper discs, which were likely worn as ornaments, along with other copper objects, chisels, burns, pins, and so on. These indicate a much higher volume of copper flowing through Susa during the late 4000s BCE, or at least more willingness to bury it rather than continue to recycle it. The copper probably originates in the Anarak mines in central Iran, over 500 kilometers to the northeast. Increasingly from this point forward, Susa will control overland trade routes between highland Iran and lowland Mesopotamia. We don't see any copper axes in domestic settings, only more sensible stone axes of similar type. Copper would have been too soft in many cases anyway. This suggests that the copper axes were ritual versions of real tools, perhaps used in religious circumstances, or perhaps meant to accompany their bearer in the afterlife. In any sense, worked copper objects would represent a major investment in time, labor, and resources, creating the calculatic equivalent of a high price tag. The copper discs are associated with small vases made of ceramic, stone, and bitumen. Some academics have interpreted the discs as mirrors and the vases as cosmetics containers, in order to identify these as female graves. In any case, these were important individuals, since drilling stone into a vase would be a labor and skill-intensive process. One of the axes and some of the discs were found wrapped in linen cloth, which is among the oldest surviving linen fabric known. This proves that they were growing water-intensive flax in addition to herding sheep for wool. To quote the Cambridge Ancient History, quote, The finer samples attested extraordinary dexterity in the handling of the threads and twists, 
such fine linen could have only been achieved after many centuries of experience, end quote. Like I said, most burials were accompanied by fine painted pottery. The standard set was a tall beaker, a dish, and a jar. The skill involved in shaping and painting them and the uniformity of the style led previous academics to argue that they were all produced in a central workshop, perhaps at Susa itself. However, chemical analysis has indicated that the clay came from a range of nearby sites, suggesting an artistic style shared across Susiana rather than one unique to Susa proper. This pottery was remarkably thin, often handmade, but sometimes made on a slow wheel. The ability to fire pottery this thin without cracking the clay required careful control over the temperature of the kiln. Like I said, we see very similar pottery not only at nearby Trogamish, but also at Godin Tepe and Tepe Sabs, the latter 100 kilometers away, and Tal i Bakun, 500 kilometers away, indicating either standardizing ceramic practices or a wide exchange network. We have about 4,000 fragments of fine pottery from this period, from which we can reconstruct about 1,000 vessels. Their most distinctive and famous features are their wild painted goats with curved horns, long a feature of Iranian art. I mentioned the stamp seal and the goat horns on the temple platform, but an early Neolithic shrine at Sheikh E. Abad included several massive skulls of wild rams. Remember that goats were domesticated here, arguably from scratch, almost exactly 4,000 years earlier. Other pots depict nature scenes. Besides goats and ibex, they painted fish, waterfowl, tortoises, and snakes, among marshes and tall sedge reeds. Many of the finest of these vessels feature painted dogs, suggesting some kind of connection between dogs and high social status. Sometimes the dog appears to be painted more skillfully than the rest of the scene on the pot, suggesting that different artists collaborated on the same pot in the same workshop. The most common breed of dog depicted has a slender, triangular head and a tail that curls up, most often painted with their front and back legs flowing out in an uninterrupted curve. They lie down the way modern Salukis do, and in fact, these may be the ancestors of Salukis, traditionally used to help hunt gazelles in the nearby hills. For example, one pot depicts a person hunting with bow and arrow, nets and snares, along with two of these Saluki-like dogs. Another painted bowl depicts one person standing on a platform. On either side, two arrow shapes point upwards from atop the platform. This is apparently some kind of ritual scene similar to those depicted on stamp seals. This guy is likely that ritual practitioner we talked about. These arrow shapes are interesting. They've been interpreted as spears, but they're more likely spades or shovels, tools associated with working fields and digging irrigation canals. In fact, Frank Hole suggests that the copper axe heads in the cemetery may actually be ritual versions of digging tools rather than cutting tools. As we'll see, other religious symbols may have been erected on platforms. This may have been part of an agricultural ritual. On the same bowl, three parallel zigzag lines might represent either irrigation canals or steps on this monumental platform. Vultures might be related to excarnation rituals, including a possible charnel house on top of the second platform. More on that in a bit. Like other administrative households, whatever authority reigned at Susa kept track of large amounts of agricultural goods with a system of clay tokens and stamp seals. Susa continued to use the same clay tokens already developed at other sites, balls, discs, cones, and cylinders, each of which seems to have corresponded to a different amount of grain or other agricultural product. The only innovation we see is a tetrahedron, or a D4, or triangular pyramid, which may represent a unit of labor, although this is debated. However, nearby Jafarabat appears to have come up with the idea to paint additional markings on tokens, which presumably carried additional information on top of the token shape. These weren't the first complex tokens. I mentioned the notched cylinder back in Ubaid Unug, but these are the first such tokens complicated with painted marks rather than notches. Stamp seal impressions from the period at Susa record at least 260 unique designs, indicating that a fair number of different people were involved in tracking the flow of goods over time. These seals functioned as a system of storage and administration, pressed into the clay sealing mouths of jars and pots covered with cloth, and the wooden pegs securing storeroom doors thus preventing anyone from opening those pots or doors without breaking the seal. As we've talked about, some seals may have identified private individuals or households, likely the more simple geometric patterns, 
while the more complex and skillfully rendered scenes may have identified officials within the administrative hierarchy. One stamp still depicts a similar scene to that painted bowl I just mentioned. Two long poles are set up on pedestals with a triangular shape on top. These are likely the same symbolic objects on poles, or standards, which may be spears, but which are more likely shovels or spades. The same seal depicts people wearing ring-shaped headdresses. On other seals, the ring motif appears alone or set up on a base on a pole, like the spade. We'll never understand the full symbolic context for these objects. Other seals depict the Master of the Beasts motif, in which a heroic human figure subdues one or two beasts or monsters. This motif continues into later Mesopotamian history and is strongly associated with the beginning of royal propaganda. Over time, iconography focuses less on this individual leader and more on ritual scenes involving many people, which may be a symptom of increasing institutionalization centered on the temple household. If you're listening to this in the future, I'll have a section talking about the concept of a chiefdom in episode 15. If not, it might be a few months. It's not my first priority. The short version is that, in a certain conception of the evolution of social complexity, chiefdom is a stage between tribe and state. The classical model, developed in the 60s and 70s, was based on ethnographic observation of peoples in Melanesia and New Guinea. In a 1974 article, Colin Renfrew identified several archaeological features of chiefdoms, including a chief who organizes the redistribution of goods and organizes public labor projects, including farming, irrigation, and construction, and pervasive social inequality marked by a distinctive style of dress and ornamentation for elites. One could argue that the colossal platform and the tiny percentage of graves with copper goods and fine stamp seals present evidence of public works and distinctive ornamentation for a social elite, respectively. In Renfrew's framework, Susa would be a quote-unquote group-oriented chiefdom, that is, it has a, quote, low level of technology without full-time craft specialization, end quote. He presumes the existence of, quote, periodic redistribution by the chief at fixed intervals, end quote. Even including the copper axes, we don't see much disparity in personal wealth, especially compared to the graves at Gaura around this time. The construction of the platform might show, quote, group solidarity expressed most directly in communal or group activities, end quote. And it certainly constitutes a spatial, religious, and possibly an economic center, all of which fit his definition of a group-oriented chiefdom. In a 1983 article, Frank Hall suggested that Sousa may have worked on similar lines to the chiefdom of the Cherokee Nation in southeastern North America, quote, organized into semi-autonomous conical clans whose heads met in councils, end quote. The chief in traditional Cherokee society would be the head of one clan selected by the heads of other clans and would exercise a leadership role, quote, only in certain limited and well-defined situations, end quote. In every other situation, he would be treated as a regular member of his clan and broader community. In other words, the honor due to the chief didn't inhere in his person, it was restricted to the particular situation that required a chief's leadership. So there would be a so-called chiefly stratum, but it would be occupied by many people. Leadership is based on age, experience, and moral authority, rather than being concentrated in the child of a particular individual. And leaders or elders, quote, intent on achieving consensus and preserving tradition through peaceful attention to ceremony and tradition, end quote. Day-to-day administration of domestic tasks were organized within the clan, usually without need for formal political intervention. These clans could also be units of labor available to be mobilized into the aforementioned labor projects. So coming back to Susa, we can't be sure how to interpret these depictions of one guy wearing goat horns, handling snakes, and doing some kind of dance between religious symbols. This may even be a scene from mythology which was never actually enacted in person. However, given the correspondence between the archaeological record, painted pottery, and figural representations on stamp seals, it is likely that these scenes had something to do with what people were actually doing on top of this temple platform. Of course, I've talked a lot about the centrality of feasting and gift-giving to the emerging concept of chiefdom. However, the definition I used back in episode 15 focused more on control over farmland and redistribution of grain rather than high-value jewelry or other manufactured gifts. In articles in 1994 and 2020, Gilstein described an economic system which he called wealth finance chiefdom based on these chiefs' control of trade routes connecting natural resources and chiefs with artisans to turn them into fine gifts. 
Susa would fit this description, since it's placed on the overland trade route would give it unique leverage over Mesopotamian cities, importing materials from the Iranian highlands. A chief at Susa might be able to parlay their control over copper, in particular, into more power or leverage in Mesopotamia. However, as Stein points out, this potential for rapid growth and expansion is only part of a more unstable process of interaction, inherently unpredictable and prone to collapse. As Hole concludes in 1983, Susa doesn't appear to have been ruled by a single absolute monarch. Rather, it appears to have been a complex society with an entire community of leaders, likely of different clans or regional communities. In other words, it wasn't a pyramid-shaped society, it was trapezoid-shaped, like the temple platform itself. As Hole writes, quote, At Susa, commoner and priest alike, one in the eyes of their gods, toiled together in life and lay side by side at the base of the platform in death. End quote. Like I said, there may have been a charnel house on top of the Ut Terrasse, or the massive second platform. This would explain the vultures in religious scenes, who may have eaten bodies exposed on top of the platform. They might have also used this area for cremations. I only mentioned cremations because the entire top of the second platform burned in a massive fire around 4000 BCE. The decorated facade I mentioned collapsed, taking much of the upper layer with it. Some scholars speculate about a charnel house because the layers of collapsed facade also apparently include disarticulated human bones. In other words, if people had fallen off, there would be entire human skeletons there, but instead there are bones that were already separated when they fell. So they're probably storing separated human bones on top of the temple platform. Additionally, we do have one complete skeleton showing that one person was apparently crushed in this collapse and buried more or less intact in the rubble. The top of this platform was rebuilt, but it burned again a second time not long afterwards. These destructions mark the end of Susa's site of regional dominance around 4200 to 4000 BCE. It's not clear whether the Acropolis was burned down by violent invaders, but it seems more likely here than at Chogamish. If there was a battle to defend the platform, some of its victims may be buried at the cemetery. At least some of the graves date to this period. The Susa 1 building I mentioned on the Apadana Mound was also burned around the same time, but it was rebuilt and continuously occupied afterwards, unlike this larger platform. Other destruction layers in Iran date to around this period, including Tepe Siok to the northeast and Tal i Bakun to the southeast. Are these evidence of widespread social unrest or ritual abandonments resulting from climate change and emigration? From this period onwards, about 4,000 to 3,800 BCE, we see a sharp decline in population, corresponding to Acropole level 24 at Susa. After the temple is destroyed and abandoned, Susa itself shrinks from 15 to 5 hectares. We can't be sure exactly why. Climate change may have played a role in forcing people to abandon farming in favor of mobile herding. Many scholars also speculate about political competition with increasingly large and complex settlements to the west in the Mesopotamian Delta. Some even go so far as to say that people leaving Susiana are leaving to go set up shop in these new Mesopotamian cities. Speaking of which, some of the characteristic Uruk pottery from the city starts to appear in Susa, marking the beginning of the Uruk period here. We'll talk about these ramifications later. During this period, we see more evidence of personal adornment compared to previous periods, including ear spools, labrays or lip discs, and head shaping, which continues from earlier periods. This may indicate an increased focus on personal identity, as communal identity centered on the temple household collapses, but it may also represent a sampling bias. Anyway, that is that on Susa. Let's move about 500 kilometers to the southeast to Fars province in south-central Iran. Specifically, we're in the Kur River Valley, home to later Persepolis and Anshan, both massively important to later periods of Iranian history. At this point, this valley was mostly open terrain, perfect for agriculture. This was apparently before forests of oak, pistachio, and almond trees had spread across the region after the end of the last glacial period. This area was first settled during the late 6000s BCE, around the same time we have evidence for settlement in the southern Mesopotamian Delta. As we'll see, the two regions had some similarities in material culture. The vast majority of sites in the 4000s BCE were small villages under one hectare, mostly near freshwater springs, with no need for large-scale labor projects. We have no evidence of irrigation until much later. Their economy was an elaboration on the Iranian Neolithic package, based on wheat, barley, and lentils, goat, sheep, cattle, and pig, and a small amount of foraging, 
likely because the climate was too dry to produce a massive grain surplus. This flexible subsistence would allow them to survive fluctuations in climate and rainfall. In dry years, they could hunt in the nearby mountains, like in Susiana. Around the same time, Chocomiche was abandoned, around 4600 BCE, we see large migrations into the Kur River Valley, which peaks at 85 separate sites, the most from any time period in the area. Though we can't be sure how many of these migrants came from Susiana, we do see some cultural connections to the western lowlands and the resulting hybrid culture. So we're going to finish up today at the site of Tal-i-Bakun, a village in the Kur Valley. It's three kilometers south of Persepolis and not far from Anshan. Its two mounds were occupied between about 4500 and 3900 BCE, corresponding to the late Chalcolithic 1 and 2 periods in northern Mesopotamia. We're going to be focusing on levels 3 and 4 today, between about 4200 and 3900. It is about the exact same time as Seuss's Golden Age. Most houses from this period were small, with between 3 and 5 rooms, often sharing walls with neighboring houses so that each house's shape was determined by that of the house next to it. The central room often had benches and painted walls, like the houses at Chatalharyuk, with stacks of serving vessels. Their hards were inside, but all their ovens and kilns were outside. They appear to have eaten in smaller groups than in southern Mesopotamia. The site of Bakun is the namesake of the Bakun material culture, which first appeared in the Kur Valley in the early 5000s BCE, around the same time that a similar style of Ubayid pottery spreads across the Mesopotamian Delta. Bakun pottery is often painted with complex geometric designs, as well as figurative depictions of humans, lizards, longhorn sheep, and goats. Like Ubayid pottery, Bakunware is black on buff, finely painted, finished on a slow wheel or tornet, and fired at high temperatures. Both societies administered their economies with stamp seals and tokens, indicating they may have been part of the same cultural interaction network. Bakun clay figurines had elongated heads like Ubaid Ophidian figurines. It's not clear if this also corresponded to a head-shaping practice, since we don't have any burials from Bakun. Some of them were also decorated with similar dots to Ubaid figurines. We also see some more stylized figurines, similar to the so-called cobra style from Susiana. In other words, in terms of figurines, southern Mesopotamia had more to do with southern and southwestern Iran than it did with northern Mesopotamia. Spindle whorls at Bakun indicate they were spinning wool into thread. Flax is less likely, given the climate and the small scale of their communities. Sheep are easier to raise in rural mountain environments. It's likely that the population of the town had family links to mobile herding groups in the nearby hills, and some of them may have only lived in town on a seasonal basis. Like Tepegara, Bakun may have been an administrative center for a larger region of semi-sedentary herders. Kilns and ovens in outdoor areas appear to have been used for industrial production, with centuries worth of pottery wasters, copper slag, and lots of ash. As at Susa, during the same time period, copper objects were becoming more common. Besides needles and chisels, we see a copper stamp seal and a copper dagger 25 centimeters long. Besides copper from central Iran, they imported obsidian from eastern Anatolia and turquoise from northeastern Iran. As far as other objects in the 1988 article, Abbas Alizadeh lists, quote, small decorated pottery pipes, stone mace heads and pounders, stone and clay sling missiles, large and miniature vessels of alabaster and local stones, flint and obsidian blades, and finished and half-finished stone stamp seals, end quote. A few large buildings with several rooms made of rammed earth and mud bricks may have been public buildings. Five of them produced 140 seal impressions on clay tags and the seals on sacks and bales, suggesting an administrative purpose for these buildings. 104 door ceilings are among the oldest known evidence of a storage system which sealed entire rooms rather than just individual containers, which suggests a larger volume of materials moving through this institution. One seal, a four-pointed star, appears impressed on 28% of all ceilings, mostly door ceilings. This design will later appear inside the Proto-Elamite sign called the Hairy Triangle. The next most common seals appear on 14%, 11%, and 9% of ceilings, respectively. This may be evidence of a bureaucratic hierarchy. Either one important person had to approve a quarter of all transactions, or that seal belonged to the lowest level administrator recording intake from the community. 
Since the administration appears to have been distributed between different buildings, it's possible that different seals represented different households with authority over different aspects of the economy. Otherwise, certain individuals are beginning to take responsibility for storing and distributing large amounts of agricultural goods, sharing in the same regional trends that we see at Susiana. So moving on to the second part of Inanna and An. So at some point in the past, in the story of the myth, the heaven god An controlled not only his temple complex of the Kolaba at Unug, but also the neighboring Eana. And when his daughter Inanna got married to Dumuzi, she asked for the Eana as a dowry gift, but An refused. So Inanna set out to take it from him. So, like I said, this text is fragmentary. We have a very cool section coming up with unfortunate gaps that make it hard to tell exactly what's going on. Shul Azira, An's herdman, grasped the cosmic tethering rope in his hands. After he had brought the forth from the sky, he overcame the protective deities, he, and kept it below the horizon. Having drunk cleansing water from the Ulaya River, Inanna stamped on the scorpion and cut off its tail. Like a lion, it bellowed in an angry roar, but its cries died down. Having heard its cries, she poured forth the clay of creation. So Inanna delivers some kind of challenge to An. It's unclear what she says, but having heard those words, An slapped his thighs, his voice filled with sighs of grief. What has my child done? She has become greater than me. What has Inanna done? She's become greater than me. From now on, the normal length of daylight becomes shorter, and daylight converts to nighttime. From today, when the day's watch is three units long, daylight is equal to nighttime. And now, when day began, it was indeed so. An, who created gods and humankind, gazed at holy Inanna and addressed the favorite wife who travels by his side. Unable to describe this arrogance, this arrogance. My child, you were able to capture Inanna. Inanna should be as firm as heaven. It should not be toppled. Its name should be the settlement of the land. It should have no rival. Mankind, of all the people, should prostrate themselves at its feet. And now, under that sun and on that day, it was indeed so. She had captured Aeana from An. She secured it. Now Inanna speaks of the Aeana as the house that is the place of the lady, the goddess who has attained her triumphant position. Inanna, who has attained her triumphant position, declares in the good place, I have captured Aeana from An. Because you were unmatched among the great princes, maiden Inanna, praising you is magnificent. Music